Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. Alan Freeland tells us about Owen Jones, a versatile Victorian architect and designer. He helped pioneer modern colour theory and he was responsible for the interior decoration and the arrangement of exhibits in the Crystal Palace for the Great Exhibition of 1851. This talk follows on from the ramifications of Gladstone's book on Homer and the Homeric Age in 1858. And we explored his hypothesis that Greeks were largely colorblind. We explored that. And then my last talk on the art and architecture of Islamic Spain. So these two things led me to this guy called Owen Jones, and in particular, his design focused views on ornamentation and color. So color will once again be an important part of this talk, but it, it will be much broader than just just colour. So Owen Jones is an architect, he was a scholar, author, publisher, illustrator and very much an authority on colour design and ornament. Um, more than this though, he was an educator, moderniser, visionary and thought Britain deserved an artistic style to reflect the new Victorian age. He's not that well known to us because he didn't leave us many buildings for reasons which I'll, I'll cover, but his ideas are still covered in architectural and art courses today and his theories on architecture and society influenced some of the greatest thinkers and architects of his day, such as Pugin and Ruskin, and of subsequent generations, such as Frank Lloyd Wright and Corbusier. As I say, because there's very little of his work left today, he's hardly known, yet at the time of his death, and today by those who in fact have studied him, he is recognised as having raised the standards of British design to be competitive worldwide. From what I've read, I think his greatest influence was us as a teacher, and how many famous teachers from history can we name? So from agenda, to explain the, his relevance, I'll set the scene as to what the world was like at the end of the Georgian era, beginning of the Victorian era. We'll look specifically at the state of British architecture during this period, and then we'll delve deeper into who he was and finish with the three contributions he's most noted for. Documenting the architecture of the Alhambra and promoting the Moorish style creating, against tremendous opposition, the, the highly successful interior design for the Great Exhibition of 1851, and producing a reference book for architects, designers, and colorists called The Grammar of Ornament. Lastly, I'll try and summarize his, his legacy. So as I say, there's very little information available on him. My main reference source is a book called Owen Jones, Design, Ornament, Architecture, and Theory in an Age of Transition by Carol Flores. Victorian Britain in the early 19th century. So Owen Jones was in his formative 20s during the 1830s. He had missed the Napoleonic War and the next major war affecting Britain wasn't until the Crimean War of 1853. So he grew up in a time of peace and growing prosperity. Britain was feeling confident. Representative democracy had just been significantly improved. Catholics were no longer barred from standing for parliament, though the poor were still barred from voting and universal male suffrage had to wait another 80 years. Slavery had been abolished. 
The Roman Catholic Church had just removed Galileo's book proposing the Earth went round the sun from its list of banned books. European colonization was in full swing and railways were being started to be deployed. Greece had become a country independent of the Ottoman Empire and the French July 1830s revolution turned out to be a practice for the 1848 revolution. Telegraph and electricity were still to be deployed, though the first electric car had been produced and steamships were starting to ply the Atlantic and Charles Dickens was publishing. London fires destroyed the Lloyd's Coffee House, the Royal Exchange and the Palace of Westminster and a cholera pandemic hit London killing over 6,000 and Alexander Fleming's birth was still 50 years away. So London was rapidly expanding and becoming renewed. Building work was everywhere, responding to rapid technological and social change. And the demand for new types of buildings with new uses and increased attention to safety presented difficult challenges for architects only recently united in the profession. Hanover Terrace. So Regency architecture remained popular into the 1840s and providing London with a strict form of classic Greco-Roman architecture, including columns, pediments, statues and urns, although cast iron balustrades and first floor balconies were a more modern addition. Previously exposed brick facades were stucco painted in cream tones to imitate marble or natural stone. The colour palette was white, cream, stone and black, and John Nash was the leading proponent of this Regency classicism. The most pervasive style from the early days of the Victorian era was Neo-Gothic, also called Gothic Revival, and the new Palace of Westminster, built to designs by Charles Barry, is a preeminent example. Gothic architecture embodied the influence of London's past and coincided with Romanticism, a cultural movement which glorified all things medieval, from literature and painting to music and architecture, and it decried the soullessness of modern science. The leading proponents of Gothic revival were Augustus Pugin, entrusted with interior design of the Palace of Westminster, and John Ruskin, a highly influential art cricket. And we will hear more of those later. Hallmarks of Gothic architecture are strong verticals, pointed arches, spires, steep roofs, and tracery on windows and parapets. Cast iron, and from the mid-19th century, mild steel were used in Gothic revival structures like Blackfriars Bridge and St Pancras Railway Station, and more modestly at King's Cross Station with its relatively new open plaza. If after this talk you decide you don't wish to go along with Owen Jones on primary colours, but do like the idea of Gothic revival colours, then Crown Paints have a number of ranges of historic paint colours, and Crown's colour palette seems pretty accurate, if the St Pancras Renaissance Hotel is anything to go by. This was built near the end of Owen Jones's life and it looks as if a wider colour palette of muted pastel shades has become accepted. With polyloved arches and banded and pointed arches, there are definitely elements of Moorish architecture in the design. However, all through Owen Jones's life, it was John Ruskin who was the leading English art critic. And he was also an art patron, draftsman, watercolorist, philosopher, a prominent social thinker and philanthropist. His views influenced what the public thought and what building procurers thought. He had a view on everything and he helped to legitimize a revolution in women's education. And if you're interested in him, BBC Sounds has a number of programs on John Ruskin. His views on architecture are pretty clear. He wrote, I have now no doubt that the only style proper for modern Northern work is the Northern Gothic of the 13th century as exemplified in England preeminently by the cathedrals of Lincoln and Wells, and in France, 
by those of Paris, Amiens, Chartres, Reims and Bourges. Not surprisingly, he was not a fan of Owen Jones, and many of Ruskin's writings were specifically aimed at refuting some of Owen Jones's ideas, whilst others he adopted and promoted as his own. For example, he took on board Owen's assertion that culture informs architecture, but he did not accept the implication that each age therefore needs its own architecture, and he famously said, specifically against Owen Jones's idea, we want no new style of architecture. Ruskin dismissed Islamic architecture as impure and attacked Arabic ornament for being mere lime. So I don't know what he would have thought of Sir Christopher Wren's views that Gothic architecture should be more properly called Saracen architecture since it owed more to the Moors and the Saracens than the Goths. Ruskin also argued that iron and steel had no place as structural elements of architecture since the laws of architecture were based on the use of stone, clay and wood. Jones, however, argued that had the Greeks had iron, they would most certainly have used it. There was, however, one quote of Ruskin's that I'm sure Owen Jones would have agreed with. A good sewer is a far nobler and a far holier thing than the most admired Madonna ever printed. And from what I have read, any disagreements were conducted on the basis of the merits of the arguments, not on the personalities. How refreshing. Armin's Cathedral. I'm sure Owen Jones would have been delighted with this picture, though I don't think Ruskin would have approved. Amin's Cathedral, one of Ruskin's role models for fine architecture, is known for its 15th and 16th century Gothic sculptures. During restoration work for the 800th anniversary, restorers determined that the statues and cathedral were once brightly coloured. It was too expensive to undertake a repainting, so they put on a sonne luminaire to try and recreate the original colour scheme. So at the time Owen Jones was becoming an architect, Facilities for architectural studies in Britain were way behind the continent. There was no academic institution for architects like the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris, and the leading foreign reference books on architecture were not translated into English. The key reference book was a three-volume book containing over 3,000 plans by the French architect Saru d'Agencourt, entitled History of Art by its Monuments from its decline in the 14th century to its restoration in the 16th century. Just from its title, we can tell this is a meaty tome. Three editions had been published in Italian and one in German, but no English translation had been attempted. In 1847, Owen Jones took it upon himself to translate this work for the benefit of the British architectural profession. And this work is testament to Jones's academic rigor and scholarship and his talents and energies to undertake such a monumental task in a brief time. The literary magazine The Athenium compared Jones's edition to the original and other translations. They praised the content of Dagincourt's original three volumes, but observed that, as a work of reference, the ponderosity, now there's a word I wish would come back, the ponderosity of the original edition was a serious inconvenience. They noted that the Italian and German editions improved this defect by presenting the material in a less bulky volumes than the original, but it was still necessary to have two books. Jones's edition of the history of art was, quote, superior to all its predecessors, since the whole had been condensed into less than half the bulk of the original, without reducing the size or number of the plates, or depriving us of any essential point of information to be found in the foreign editions. They went on to note, added to these improvements is another, which is a convenience in a book of reference. It is that, with a few exceptions, the description of the plate is always found on the page opposite the plate itself. So instead of having to consult another volume, as in the preceding editions, or to refer to another page, 
the reader has print and description before him at once. So I quote all this to give an indication of Jones's expertise as a scholar, as a communicator and as an educator. And to complete our understanding of the state of British architecture at the time that Owen Jones came on the scene, what was the state of the British understanding of Islamic architecture? Islamic buildings are relatively unstudied by British architects, partly since non-Muslims were denied access to places of religious devotion, but more that few practitioners had journeyed to the Middle East and those who had dismissed the architecture as insignificant. They saw originality only in the secondary structures like kiosks and fountains, and consequently produced no academic investigations of the buildings they visited. Instead, they produced picturesque drawings and watercolours. Jones produced some of these compositions, but went beyond the efforts of other artists and architects to analyse the buildings he found and interpret the motivations and techniques of the builders. So who was Owen Jones? And again, I apologise up front for any mispronunciations. Owen Jones's father, Owain Mifur, had been born in Denbyshire, modern-day Conway County, North Wales, in a small village that has today a population of 189, probably much the same when Owain was living there. Owain moved to London as an apprentice to a furrier's and later took over the running of the firm. He was successful and became wealthy. Fearing for the survival of the Welsh language, he founded the Gwenidigan Society in London to encourage the study of Welsh and Welsh literature. He generously and almost single-handedly supported this organisation, paying for its publications and the prizes for its contests. He also purchased the transcripts of all available Welsh poetry and prose, amassing a collection of 35,000 manuscripts and documents by the time he died. Some of this he published at great personal cost and received recognition from and became friendly with such notables as Matthew Arnold, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Robert Southey, the Poet Laureate of England. Owain married his maidservant, Hannah Jane Jones, and they had one son, Owen Jones, and either one or two daughters or other sources say he had six children. There is very little biographical information available on the Joneses. Sadly, Owain died when Owen was only five. Fortunately, Owain was able to leave Owen a legacy, as well as an 800-acre working farm in North Wales. Owain's Welsh books were sold and became the core of the British Library's Welsh book collection. Owen had a brief spell at Charterhouse and attended private schools. He inherited his father's passion for publication of specialised and very expensive books. After school, he attended the Royal Academy and then commenced his architect training by being articled to the noted architect Louise Villami. He received, by British standards of the day, a first-rate training, as Villami's credentials were impressive. He had distinguished himself in studies at the Royal Academy, winning the silver and gold medals and won a four-year travelling scholarship. Villami designed the Law Society's building in Chancery Lane. With Villami's encouragement then, Owen Jones embarked on a European tour. Now, Middle Eastern destinations were not part of the typical 18th century grand tour agenda, but they were becoming increasingly favoured in the beginning of the 19th century. One historian has reviewed the issues of the Gentleman's magazine during 1829 and 1830 to discover a profusion of articles, poetry and references to Egypt, Persia, Constantinople, and it is known that Villami visited Istanbul. Owen Jones travelled first to Italy and then to Greece, where he met the young French architect Jules Goury, who was assisting Gottfried Semper with his radical studies on the polychromy of ancient Greek buildings. Jones and Goury travelled together to Egypt to study the Islamic architecture of Cairo and the ancient sites and continued on to Constantinople 
before finally arriving in Granada in Spain, where they embarked on their studies, the Zalpin of the Alhambra. If James didn't already have a fascination with colour, the extended period with Gori would certainly have installed such a passion. Now, students on a grand tour measured, rendered, and sometimes produced reconstruction drawings of the monuments and ruins they observed. These representations filled portfolios with evidence of drawing proficiency and accumulated knowledge to impress prospective clients. Aspiring architects also published books featuring these plans and drawings as another way to become established in the profession. In this respect, Owen Jones was following the practice of his profession. However, as we shall see, the level of detail he went to in understanding the buildings he studied gave him unique insight into building design in different cultures, and he emerged from his tour as an early advocate for a new style of architecture expressive of the era. Through observing other ages and cultures, he recognised the reciprocal relationship between culture and architecture and believed the quality of British life would be enhanced through improved design. It was his work on the Alhambra that was to make Owen Jones's name. Jules Gurry and Owen Jones spent six months living at the Alhambra and producing sketches and measurements and noting the use of colour. His two-volume book, Owen Jones, Plans, Elevations, Sections and Details of the Alhambra, which took him 10 years to produce from 1836 to 1845. If there's one architectural feature that says this is Islamic building above all others, it's the Makarnas that strange, almost impossible to photograph, device for attractively joining a vault, such as an arch or a dome, to walls at right angles. It is sometimes described as honeycomb or stalactite vaulting. Owen Jones, of course, was intrigued and needed to know exactly how the Macarnas was made. He was the first to document this feature for a modern Western audience. And just to give you some idea of the level of detail he went to, here is his description, a description which apparently is still in use today to describe Macarnas. The ceiling, in the Hall of the Ambassadors, receives its support at each end from pendentives, abutting against the great arches. These pendentives are a very curious mathematical construction. They are composed of numerous prisms of plaster, united by their contiguous lateral surfaces, consisting of seven different forms, proceeding from three primary figures of A, right-angled triangle, B, the rectangle, and C, the isosceles triangle. Owen then goes on at great length to detail the properties of these triangles and rectangles, and he finishes with, by which it will be seen that a piece may be combined with any one of the others by either of its sides, thus rendering them susceptible of combinations as various as the melodies which may be produced from the seven notes of the musical scale. Whilst limited use of inscriptions was common in medieval Britain, it had largely gone out of fashion by the 19th century. Inscriptions are, of course, a prominent feature of Islamic architectural decoration used extensively in the Alhambra. Jones documented these inscriptions and had them translated, and his work drew attention to this decorative technique. And there are several examples of inscriptions used in British architecture from the 1840s onwards. But how much of it's due to Owen is hard to say. So his book, Plans, Elevations, Sections and Details of the Alhambra, with all the incredibly detailed drawings and measurements that Owen and Gorey had produced, and with his new insights on decoration and colour, Owen was keen to produce an education resource for the architect profession. Owen insisted the book be large scale to display the detail. 68 centimetres by 52 centimetres is about two foot square. And he insisted it contain a large number of high quality colour plates. There are 102 plates in all, 70 of which are in colour. This was way beyond what the printers of the day could manage. So he had to print the books himself. 
he employed noted London printers to help him, and they developed an existing experimental process called chromolithography. All this cost a fortune, and he had to mortgage his Welsh farm to raise enough money to develop this new printing process and get the book printed. The two volumes together weigh 26 kilograms, which is three kilograms more than many airlines have as their checked-in maximum baggage weight. The purchase price was 36 pounds and 10 shillings, which is worth about 2,000 pounds today, and enough in 1840 to buy two horses. A first edition today would cost you around 15,000 pounds. So I don't know about you, when I read the word chromolithography, I thought, that sounds a clever technical process. Well done, the Victorians. I then found a helpful YouTube video that explained the lithography process, and I now understand why it took 20 draftsmen, engravers and printers nine years to produce Owen's two-volume work. However, without this technique of relying on drawing on copper plate and painting by hand, one printing expert has calculated that it would have taken one artist at least 42 years to produce the plates and one printer 104 years to print them. The plans, elevations, sections and details of the Hamburg book won immediate and widespread acclaim, both for the book's beauty, printed colour of this quality and scale had not been seen before, and its practical value both for the study of the Alhambra, but more importantly for what it said about Islamic architecture and indeed on how to present architectural detail. And it established Owen Jones's reputation and credibility as an expert on colour, ornament, chromolithography and Islamic architecture. And in 1978, a Harvard professor of Islamic art and architecture observed that it is interesting and distressing that Owen's books should still be the best available for architectural drawings and decorative designs from the Alhambra. Owen Jones's work was clearly one of great technical merit. However, at the same time as Jones was producing this book, writers, poets and artists were visiting exotic locations like North Africa and Islamic Spain and producing romantic and exotic images, which became part of the Moorish revival fashion in both Europe and America. Many hotels, bars and cinemas were purposely built or had a makeover and were renamed with such names as Granada, or Alhambra. So although Jones's work earned, earned him the appellation Alhambra Jones, and this was probably meant as a tribute, it associated him more with a frivolous romantic set rather than a serious academic set. Just as an aside, a number of architectural historians that became knowledgeable in a particular field were also given similar nicknames. There was, for example, at the same time, a James Athenian Stuart and a Alexander Greek Thompson. So whilst Owen Jones entered many competitions for designing new buildings, his ideas were not in line with Ruskin's and the conservative nature of most people running these competitions and the influence of Ruskin meant he was rarely successful. His reputation as Alhambra Jones also hindered more than it helped. One building that does still exist today is Christchurch Streatham in London. Some of you may be familiar with it. James Wilde won the contract for the overall design and Owen for the interior design but Wilde was also open to some of Jones's suggestions on the exterior. The cornice is styled on an Egyptian cavietto. The huge arch frame in the door is similar to an arch in a mosque in Cairo. And whilst the horseshoe shapes the arch with alternate segments of red and brick is classic of Islamic Cordoba. The tall tower next to the church is modeled on the Geralda tower, now part of Seville Cathedral, but originally built for Seville's mosque. Just as Owen's bold ideas and adventure elements may have threatened them, and some competition judge rejected stylish and detailed perspectives as unfair 
since the judges felt that showing detailed decoration was a distraction from the basic design and was unfair to those who didn't have Jones's skills. In the same vein, some competition instructions stipulated that all designs and plans must be submitted in black and white to reduce the influence of colour on jurists. As a result, Jones's exceptional proficiency in the use of colour, for which he was highly acclaimed in architectural magazines, was ignored. Where Owen did have a chance to build, the results were always well received. And here's an example. Caesar Daly visited one of Jones's residential interiors in London. The effect of these colours was not overdone. In this way, the entrance hall, the passage and the stairway received uncoloured reliefs, while the main living room displayed chromatic cornices and in the centre of the ceiling. They explained the concentration of lavish ornament on the ceiling added brilliance to the decor without detracting from the beauty and fashions of the ladies in the room. He continued his enthusiastic account by saying the visit had occurred on a grey and rainy day. Jones's ability was a precious talent in a country with unpleasant weather. Another church shows how it influenced those who were still very much in the Gothic revival school. Use of strong colours, including primary colours, and the tile work with geometric designs. You may also be able to see the horizontal band of text running the height of the top of the candles. More subtle, on the column of the doorway on the left, are the vertical colour bands in blue and a horizontal one in red. All of these motifs derive from Owen's understanding of the use of colour in different cultures. And these motifs only started to appear in Pugin's work post the publication of Owen's Alhambra book, a book that Pugin is known to have owned. Although Jones was not successful with competitions, he did receive many commissions. One of the first was from John Somerset, the seventh Duke of Beaufort, for redesigning the interior of his house in Piccadilly. Sadly, the design no longer exists and we have no pictures. The phrase historians use in research in the classical period or Middle Ages, sadly it no longer exists, should apply so frequently to Owen Jones's work of the 19th century. One of the few that does exist is number 24 Kensington Palace Gardens, otherwise known as Millionaire's Row. Jones actually designed two houses in Kensington Palace Gardens, number eight and number 24. Number eight was used during World War II for the interrogation of German spies and was declared unsafe after the war and demolished. One wonders what the real reason was for its demolition. Designs and plans of these buildings exist and show a gradually enthusiastic acceptance of some of Jones's design and colour ideas, whilst also showing the range of styles Jones was capable of working with. The Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. It was founded in 1754 and Jones sitting on committees and arguing the case before professionalism in art, architecture and design. His interest went beyond just architecture as he, with other prominent figures like Charles Dickens, sat on committees addressing social concerns, such as improving sanitation. The occasion that prompted Owen Jones to present Charles Dickens with a certificate for his residence on Shakespeare's in Kent is not known, but it does indicate the two had a close relationship. Dickens is known to have complained to Owen Jones that the perfection of mechanical reproduction in printing, Owen Jones was known for his attention to detail and accuracy. It therefore seems highly unlikely that the misspelling of the word pilgrims as pilgrims was an accident, but rather intended as a humorous rebuttal of Charles's comment on mechanization. The quality of Jones's work in the Alhambra was so extraordinary that artists, literary figures and others interested in graphic design petitioned him to produce title pages, designs and sumptuous borders for their publications. He also produced his own artistic gift books, including an ornate psalter for the Queen. 
He formed a lifelong relationship with the owners of the De La Rue Company, working with three generations of owners to produce many of the de their designs from stationery, postage stamps, currency, to playing cards. And one limited edition of playing cards produced 50 exhibition, which we'll talk more about shortly, was recently on sale for 350 pounds. So at the end of the 18th century, architects, archeologists are beginning to report observing the remains of pigments on Greek and Roman buildings. And in 1806, one of them proposed the term polychromy to refer to the use of gold, crystals and paint in the decoration of buildings and sculptures. And this term caught on. Reconstructions and reimagining of classic buildings resulted in pictures based on some archeological evidence, but also involving a fair amount of guesswork, this was a revolutionary insight and challenged the years of classicist convention that the Greeks had only been interested in form and preferred the use of white marble to emphasize light and shadow. Jack Hithoff lectured in Paris in 1829-1830 that Greek temples had originally been painted ochre yellow with the moldings and sculpture details in red, blue, green and gold. Modern thinking is that this may well have been true for wooden or plain stone temples but with marble temples, colour was used sparingly to highlight architectural detail. So before the age of 30, Owen Jones was a significant contributor to many debates on aspects of art, architecture and society. And through his extensive research and stylistic analysis of past architectural styles, his contribution was better informed than most. He also spoke with clarity and logic that allowed his old audience to make up their own minds as to whether they supported his thesis or not. For example, in a lecture entitled On the Influence of Religion Upon Art, Jones discussed the beliefs and motivations of the Egyptians, Romans, Greeks, Christians and Muslims. And he posited a relationship between the level of art and architecture produced by each of these groups with the level of their religious commitment. He argued that stars evolved in a region depending on whether at that time the region was more or less pious than previously. Jones argued that in the Victorian era, commerce and industry had become the dominant forces in society instead of religion. And since these forces were, quote, void of feeling of, or of faith, the building churches with every attention paid to the comforts of the creature and so little to the glory of the creator in whose dwelling that we are supposed to be. I guess Owen Jones didn't feel the cold. In a lecture on polychromy, he made the following rather contentious statement on the use of strong contrasting colors to decorate buildings. The Egyptians and the Greeks, the primary colors, if not exclusively employed, were certainly dominant of creative art. Henry Cole, who was to become the organizer for the great exhibition of the works of industries of all nations of 1851, more commonly known as the Crystal Palace exhibition. Cole and Lewis became friends and shared a common desire to improve the quality of British design. In January 1850, a building committee was formed to manage the design and build of the exhibition space. A competition was held for the design of the building, but by May, none of the 250 submitted proposals was deemed suitable. And Cole appointed a group of his friends, Digby Watt, Charles Wilde and Owen Jones, to come up with the design. The building was to be temporary and operational within nine months. This was the, the design they came up with. They worked with Brunel on the design of the dome, which was larger than St Paul's, to ensure its viability. The public, however, didn't like the design. And instead, the public wanted a design by Joseph Paxton, and is the design that was built, constructed out of iron and glass. Ruskin called it a cucumber frame and refused to have anything to do with it. 
Jones and Ward were given roles as superintendents of the works, with Owen having responsibility for the exterior interior decoration of the 18-acre site. From the furniture inside the hall to the statues, fountains and pathways outside, Jones's contribution included ornamentation of the building, layout of the exhibits, as well as the design of the largest clock in England for the transept of the building. In all these areas, Jones received praise for his work. However, the most challenging politically and with the strongest opposing views was in the decoration and colour scheme. And by November 1850, there was still no agreement and no funds for the painting of the exhibition hall. Owen argued strongly for his colour theory of decoration using strong primary colours. He produced watercolour paintings and mocked up examples to persuade the decision makers and sponsors, such as Prince Albert, who remained exceedingly nervous concerning Owen's plans. The press comments on Owen's colour scheme used words and phrases like the great paint controversy, vulgar, massive confusion, painful, unsightly, palpable disfigurement, abominable taste, hideous glare. On December the 16th, in an attempt to assuage the criticism, Owen presented the reasons for his approach to a packed meeting of the Royal Institute of British Architects. But again, when the press reprinted Owen's speech, the hostility just increased. As with every controversy, everyone became an expert and the nation became experts on colour decoration and everyone promoted their own theories. So if you Google Dickinson's comprehensive pictures of the Great Exhibition of 1851, you'll find 24 other gorgeous prints digitised by the British Library. Also, the British Library site is a lovely article by Lisa Picard that describes the exhibition. So note the yellow and blue ribs supporting the glass roof of the transept. On the left side, note the blue brace girders supporting the red and yellow balustrades of the upper floor. And on the pillars, note the yellow and blue stripes. So that's what the Crystal Palace interior looked like. So back to our story. Jones remained calm. He argued that the number and variety of attacks of his proposal showed the pervasive ignorance of design principles and he stuck to his plans. During January and February, as painting progressed, 500 painters were employed to do the painting. The press started to change their views and became enthusiastic. To justify their change of heart, some argued that the original paint tests didn't reflect what was now being painted. Some argued that Jones had softened the colours as originally proposed, and some distanced themselves altogether from the initial scepticism. On opening day on 1st of May 1851, the press was full of phrases like, we applaud Jones, superior taste and skill, the most successful edifice of modern times, a fairyland of beauty and wonder. The Illustrated London News wrote, the surpassing beauty is in great measure to the lights and shadows and colours with which the objects are presented to view and which have rendered the building the most attractive in the whole world. Ruskin remained unchanged in his views, saying the column should never have been painted with vertical stripes. Incidentally, Gladstone was friendly with Sir Henry Cole and he visited the Great Exhibition where he procured a small statue. So he must have been well aware about the debate about colour and possibly even about the growing evidence for polychromy in ancient Greece prior to him writing his history of Homer. There was a whole section on rocks and minerals in the exhibition in the South Australian section the Kaplunda copper mine is promoting its ores. And despite British reservation of using colour for building decoration, here the ladies seem to be comfortable in bright primary colours. Perhaps the term polychromy would be appropriate. The green parasols are very common in all the pictures, and I wonder if these are available for sale at the exhibition, 
or were just that year's colour. The principles that Owen used we will look at shortly, but it's worth noting that Owen Jones was using his analysis of architectural and decorative schemes from many different cultures and applying this analysis to a brand new architectural type, an exhibition glasshouse. And there's nothing immediately Alhambra-esque about the painting of iron girders. One publicist on commenting on the effect said, I had the impression that the coarse matter with which architecture works was completely dissolved in color. The building was not decorated with color, but built up out of it. When the Crystal Palace was taken down and rebuilt as a permanent exhibition of the world's designs at Sydenham, Owen Jones was again put in charge of the decoration. Many thought that he would just repeat the successful scheme of the original, but because the new building was to contain many more plants and trees, i.e. much more greenery, Owen Jones knew the colour scheme would need to be changed to keep the colours in balance. The Sydney exhibition contained a number of fine art courts and Owen Jones designed five of them, including the Alhambra Court based on a scaled down Court of the Lions. The exhibitions and books published by Owen Jones did much to create awareness and understanding of the use of colour and awareness and appreciation of Moorish architecture. Whilst the great exhibition was a great success, creating a sense of immense national pride, Sir Henry Cole, who was the civil servant and businessman in charge of putting it on, Prince Albert, who sponsored it, and leading architects and designers like Owen Jones knew the health of British design was poor. Jones summed up the situation in a public lecture in 1853. We have no principles, no unity. The architect, the upholsterer, the paper stainer, the weaver, the calico printer and the potter each run their independent course, each struggles fruitlessly, each produces in art novelty without beauty or beauty without intelligence. A number of things were put in place. With the financial success of the exhibition, a collection of both good and bad objects was created and became the Museum of Manufacturers in Marlborough House, which eventually became the Museum of Ornamental Art and then the South Kensington Museum, and then the Victoria and Albert Museum. If you Google V&A and Owen Jones, you will find a profile of Owen Jones and his, and his contributions to the V&A. Education programs were put in place with leading architects like Owen and Pugin personally delivering lectures. Patent laws were improved, giving protection to designers and their designs. And Owen Jones developed key principles of design for the newly established government schools of design which later became the Royal College of Art. Christopher Dresser, the great designer and ceramic and botanic artist, was one of his pupils. So to accompany all this, Owen Jones started work on his book, The Grammar of Ornament, which we'll come to in a second. Owen Jones is one of the leading voices arguing that the early V&A, the Marlborough House Museum, should have a gallery of false principles. This was quickly dubbed by the press as a chamber of horrors. This display of bad design assorted visitors with a range of what was considered utterly indefensible, everyday decorative objects that didn't meet the standards of good design, such as defined in the grammar of ornament. Fabrics and wallpapers with naturalistic images of foliage and flowers were particularly frowned on, as were over-elaborate objects with excessive ornamentation, and any object in which the choice of materials or ornament seemed illogical. The failings of these exhibits were spelled out in the gallery labels and they were displayed alongside comparative objects which were judged successful and correct. Of the 87 objects originally shown in the False Principles Gallery, only 17 have been identified so far in the V&A collections. One of the problems was that none of the objects seemed to be given a museum number, almost as if they didn't deserve to be in the collection proper. Four examples of cotton singled out as poor design because of their direct imitations of nature. 
The web link can take you to an article on the VNA on its history with many more examples of what was considered bad design. The Great Exhibition itself was com commemorated in a wallpaper which embodied so many of the faults identified by the critics that it was selected for display in the False Principles Gallery. Indeed, particularly popular amongst the less well-off were the novelty wallpapers with pictorial designs that were produced in vast quantities in the 1840s. Their subjects were often commemorative, souvenirs of public occasions and historical events, sports and pastimes. Despite being condemned by the critics, they were seen by some as acceptable decorations for the poorer homes due to their educational value. These types of paper would also have been used in inns as an entertaining and topical decoration. The 319 pages of the catalogue provide a fascinating glimpse into social history in 1851, and I've highlighted a few catalogue entries, including a couple of exhibits from Farnham. So back to the grammar of ornament. Many designers and architects had previously documented their own personal creed of what made good decoration, but none had done rigorous research of the world's cultures and none produced such detailed drawings and coloured illustrations to support their creed. The book covered 20 decorative styles, codifying and illustrating each and discussing the historic context and influences. In all, there are 112 color prints produced using chromolithography. So for completeness, the styles are Arabian, Byzantine, Celtic, Chinese, Egyptian, Elizabethan, Greek, Hindu, Illuminated, Indian, Italian, Medieval, Moresque and the Alhambra, Leaves and Flowers from Nature, Nineveh and Persia, Pompeian, Renaissance, Roman, Savage Tribes and Turkish. And nearly half the content was totally original, not having been seen in print before. The book was highly successful both as a work of art in its own right and the source reference book for ornamental motifs. So Owen Jones' intent was the book would be used to inform and educate. He sought to re-energize British architecture and design and encourage architects and designers to develop a new style for their time using modern materials like iron and glass. He said this new style should learn from the best of the ancient past and he did a brilliant job codifying these different styles. Sadly, many designers just used Owen's book as a pattern book and reproduced the designs and color schemes without thought. For Owen Jones, what was important was the underlying principles behind all these designs and the grammar of ornament documents these principles and rules. So it's worth emphasizing this book is much more than just a catalog. Each design is analyzed as to why we find it pleasing. What is the science behind the ornamentation that makes it work? How, in this example, the size of the leaves get smaller as they approach the stem, the distribution of empty space to filled space. And he tried to abstract the principles he saw at work in art and nature in the grammar of ornament. So there's 37 general principles in the arrangement of form and color for the architecture and decorative arts that Owen Jones advocates. I'm not gonna go through them all, you'd be pleased to know, but I do wanna share just a few of them. Re-rule number nine, I'm sure Owen Jones knew about the golden ratio, which is nature's way of producing most perfect shapes. The Greeks knew of it, Corbusier knew of it, so it seems highly likely that Owen Jones was aware of it, but this is as close to the golden ratio that his rule gets to. Number 11, uh, this is Owen Jones expressing a preference for the arabesque over Renaissance curves. 17 is what he used on the Crystal Palace. So number 18 is quite complex, but it was key to enabling Owen Jones to most successfully decorate the Crystal Palace. So I think what Owen Jones is saying, uh, and this is my attempt to show that in the picture, and I don't know if it's correct, but I have attempted to apply the rule 18. If I've interpreted it correctly, then if you were to stand back from your screen and look at each of these color blobs, 
then they should look harmonious, they should look balanced. And I've had to put them on a background of grey, neutral grey, otherwise the blue colour would dominate. So that was the level of the science back in the 1850s. Today, of course, our understanding of colour is much, much greater than Owen Jones's day. And we have online tools such as the colour wheel from Adobe, which allows you to compose an attractive colour scheme by applying things called colour harmony rules, such as the complementary colour harmony rule or the split complementary or the triad rule. And any industry which uses colour extensively, like film, photography, advertising, magazines, etc., will have experts in colour harmony. So whilst with Owen Jones, his views on colour were the most well-known, one could say visible, of his ideas, he had many others. And so to finish this section on the grammar and ornament, let's just look at three more of his rules. I fear I have been guilty of rule number 35. Do you remember Fablon, that sticky back plastic? I don't know if it's still available. But according to this rule, I was a serial abuser. So rule 36 is Owen Jones's plea not to copy the past, but to learn from it. And in 37, this supports the need for widespread education of practitioners and the public. Do we think this still applies today or do we think the Victorians were successful? In keeping with Owen Jones's willingness to embrace new technology, he worked with the famous tile manufacturer Minton and Richard Prosser, who invented a way of using a press and moulds to produce low-cost, multi-coloured pattern tiles, known as dust-pressed tiles. I think we probably use the phrase powder-pressed tiles today. Owen Jones produced a number of designs for Minton, and apparently the process was so exciting, despite what you might be thinking, that the Marquis of Northampton held a demonstration of the technique for Prince Albert, the Duke of Wellington, Sir Robert Peel, a number of bishops, and 30 foreign princes, and apparently all were mightily impressed. And in typical Owen Jones's style, he produced another lavishly illustrated book called Designs for Mosaic Pavements to help promote the technology and British design. And not directly connected to Owen Jones, but this Moorish revival style that he was promoting in the UK was also being promoted in Europe. And in Germany at the same time, architects such as Gottfried Semper, who Owen Jones had met, and Henry Fenbeck, who emigrated to USA. Fenbeck designed the central synagogue in New York City in the Moorish revival style. Just finishing now on his legacy, in terms of people you may know who Owen Jones influenced, Frank Lloyd Wright and Le Corbusier both acknowledged the influence Owen Jones made on their design approach, even if they rebelled at the rigidity of the rules mandated in the grammar of ornament. William Morris adapted Jones's theory of colour and pattern making and used images and ideas from the grammar of ornament in his lectures. Both Jones and Morris encouraged students to seek inspiration from nature and from antiquity, and strive to make useful things beautiful in developing their own style. Whilst for Jones, Islamic Spain was the epitome of design, for Morris it was more Persia. As a rough guide, Jones tended towards geometry and abstract, while Morris tended towards nature. In many ways, William Morris built on both Ruskin and Jones's ideas in developing his artistic style. So for his work on the Crystal Palace exhibition, his grammar ornament and his services design and architecture, he was awarded the Royal Institute of British Architecture's Royal Gold Medal, presented by the Queen. He was similarly awarded by the King of Belgium and Italy, and was nominated for the Légion d'Honneur in France. In summary, he was very influential in his chosen field of ornamentation and colour, in the principles of design, and in educating the Victorians in these areas. In terms of impact on society, on art more widely, and political thinking, John Ruskin was clearly the more significant contemporary figure 
So thank you for taking the time to learn about Owen Jones, one of the United Kingdom's great designers. And to paraphrase Caesar Daly, I hope the pictures have brought illumination, warmth and sunshine without detracting from the beauty and fashions of the ladies on Zoom. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.